All right. So, we have been working through a series about having an answer, giving the reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. And so today we're going to be talking about a, a tough question. We're going to be talking about what's often called the problem of evil. Now, this is something that both believers and unbelievers wrestle with. It's something that, that every person kind of struggles to understand. We all like run into this at some time. Because we look around the world and we see that it's like completely broken. Like, where was I the other day? I think I was at the nursing home the other day visiting with Gladys Bell. And, you know, the whole scenario at a nursing home is, is just heartbreaking as it is. But there's TV going on in the background <laughs> in the middle of our conversation. And I'm hearing, I don't know what kind of TV show this was. It was like, I'd never heard of anything like this. But it's basically people's cell phone videos of crazy things that happen, like a guy trying to break into a gym or a woman setting someone's car on fire, or like things, like just horrible, horrible things, and they're just like going through all these awful videos. Like we look around the world and we, we see just evil and pain and suffering. And we don't like want to sugarcoat it. Like there's no like easy little scripture band-aid that we can just put on it and make it, make it all feel better. Like there are horrible things that happen in the world. There's things like child abuse, rape, torture. We see atrocities of war. We see earthquakes and like pain and, and suffering, just, just tragedy after tragedy. And, and all of us at, at some level wonder why. We see all this evil and suffering in the world and we wonder why does God allow this? Like how can God be good? God, I, I thought that you, you loved me. I thought that you loved people. What, what is the reason for this? I, I just can't comprehend it. And we begin to wonder if evil and suffering are compatible with an all-good and all-powerful God. You've all experienced personal tragedies where you've had to wrestle through these things. You see things on the news all the time where you're trying to wrestle through this. And, and the question is, how, as followers of God, how as believers in Jesus, as Christians, can we respond to this? What answers do we have to offer a hurting world? And it's not like we, in and of ourselves, can just figure it out, but God has given us revelation of himself in his word, and we can understand the way that God has made the world. And we might look at that and say, well, maybe we have something to offer from our perspective on whether or not evil and a good God can coexist. As we begin to unpack these questions, it's important that we understand that there's a distinction that needs to be made. There's a distinction that we have to recognize as we wrestle with evil and suffering. And that distinction is this. The problem of evil and suffering is both intellectual and emotional. There are two sides to this coin, and we have to interact and respond at both of these levels. But as we talk about the reality of evil and suffering, it's helpful to separate these two and kind of take them one at a time. Let me, let me try to explain why, all right? 
not too long ago, a few months ago, I had an awful, awful dream. In the dream, and I don't remember who the person was, it was someone close, someone in, a, in, in community with me in, that I was connected to, that, that person committed suicide. Right? This is a dream, it's not reality, it's just a dream. That person committed suicide. And I'm trying to wrestle through this with other people that are connected and whatever. And two people that I'm really close to had done something kind of foolish. And I don't remember the specifics of the dream, but they had done something to, to either mock or make fun of that person. And it wasn't their fault necessarily that that person had committed suicide, but they had cr contributed to the atmosphere was the gist of the dream. They had contributed to the atmosphere that would not help that person to feel good about themselves, right? And so in my dream, I'm confronting these two people that I love, two people that I'm close to, and I am railing on them. I am letting them have it. I am cursing at them. You can't do this stuff. And I know it's not your fault, but you can't do this stuff because this is the kind of thing that and I was letting, I was livid. Like I woke up and I was angry. Like I woke up while I was in this dream yelling at these two people. And I was so, so angry. And I had to take a moment and go, wait a minute, Brandon. It's a dream. But that emotion carried over after I had woken up. Anybody have a dream like that where the emotion of the dream just stays with you? And I have to take, like, it took me several minutes to get out of that mindset and out of that emotional state to calm down enough because I was so angry in this dream that I had to like go, wait a minute, what is reality here? Think about reality. Uh, later that day, I saw those two people and I immediately went to anger. And I was like, wait a minute, they, they did nothing. Wait, like, like they didn't do anything. This is, it, was a, it was a dream. It was not reality. But my emotions were still kind of in that place. And so it's important that we recognize that our emotions matter but sometimes our emotions don't line up with the truth. And so to separate these two things is to say, what is the truth of the matter? And then, yes, we do have to deal with our emotions. We don't want to ignore our emotions. We don't want to stuff them in a corner and pretend they don't exist. But it's important that we are led by the truth and not controlled by our emotions. We want to deal with both. And today, specifically, we're going to be talking about the intellectual side of things. So even as I maybe started talking about the problems of evil, as we see pain and suffering, and I named some of those things, maybe you felt emotions rising up within you. That, that's okay. That, that's, that, that, that's actually a good sign. But we're going to try to set the emotional side of things um, aside for this week. We're going to come back to that next week. But they, today we're going to try to talk about the intellectual problem with evil and suffering and see what answers we might have on that side of things. Now, the answers that we give today maybe not, may not be satisfying for the emotional side of things. It's probably not, like when someone is hurting, probably not the things that you want to lead with, right? We want to care for the emotional problem a little bit differently. But today, if you can just set those emotions aside for a minute, and let's try to think it through rationally and see if we can answer the intellectual side of this. So we want to be, begin by asking some questions. First of all, we want to ask, what is God like? Okay? Now, the Bible teaches, we've, we've been over this before, that, that God is all-powerful. 
We saw in Jeremiah 32 that, uh, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, and nothing is too hard for you, right? God is all-powerful. And we can take that a little further, and we can say, well, what does it mean that God is all-powerful? There's that kind of a technical definition. It's, it's important that we understand it, though. And that God being all-powerful means that God can bring about any state of affairs which is logically possible for anyone to bring about in that situation. Okay, that's a little technical, but, but what do we mean by that? Well, nothing is too hard for God, but God is a logical being. He's, he's the ground of logic and reason. Like, there, there are some limits, and it's not limits of, of might, but limits of, of rationality, right? So think about something. Like, is there such thing as a square triangle? How many sides does a square have? Four? Good. Okay, good. We passed basic geometry. How about triangle? Harder one? No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, three sides, right? There is no such thing as a square triangle. So to ask the question, can God make a square triangle? Well, he's all-powerful. Couldn't he do that? It's just nonsense question. Like, the question doesn't even make sense. It's like saying, like, someone could be married and also a bachelor. Now, you can change state from being married or a bachelor, but you can't be both at the same time. You can't be both married and a bachelor. One is just the opposite of the other. And so God... Um, it's not like God lacks some kind of power to do these things. It's just that these aren't things, so they can't be done. And along these same lines, then, these logical impossibilities would be something like a forced free choice. If you're forced to choose a particular thing, you didn't choose that freely. So these two things are logically um, contradictory. And so God can't make people freely choose. There's a second side of things when we want to talk about that highlights God's character today. And that is, God is all good and all loving. Scripture says this. It, 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 Revelation 4.8 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is speaking that God is absolutely transcendent. Holiness is about sep uh, being separate, being set apart. God is, is completely pure and there is no wickedness in him, right? Psalm 145, 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways. God always does what is right. There is no wickedness in him. And then 1 John 4, 7 through 21, we don't take the time to read all of it today, but I would encourage you to go read that. It says uh, a couple of different times it highlights some things. It says love comes from God. God is love. You'll hear this repeated a lot. God is love. We'll be back here later. But uh, this is love, that God loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he's defining what love is, right? So the Bible teaches that God is all good and all loving. Now, so God is all powerful, God is all good. Now we can ask the question, well, what is, what is evil? What does it mean for something to be evil? And I would submit that Evil is a lack of goodness. That there is, God is the standard of goodness, and evil is any deviation from that. The, the biblical word sin, it, it means uh, quite literally missing the mark. Like you're trying to hit a target and you're not quite hitting it where you're trying to. Um, when we read words like wickedness in Scripture, 
It, it's literally unrighteousness. You've got righteousness, and then you have unrighteousness or a lack of righteousness. You, you might describe um, evil something like this. Um, in, in the physical world, we have light and darkness. But we recognize that darkness is just the absence of light, right? There's like not a thing called darkness. It's like you turn off the lights and then you have darkness. The same is uh, true for something like hot and cold. We, we call it cold, but really cold is just the absence of heat. When you put something in the refrigerator, you're drawing the heat out of it, right? And, and this is the picture here of evil. It's like a lack of goodness. Another picture that we might think of is like a pothole on the road. You've got a nice smooth road. That would be the standard of goodness. And then there's a hole in it, right? Everybody knows potholes are evil, right? We just, we just, it's just clear that potholes are evil. So evil is a, is a lack of goodness. It is not measuring up to the standard of God's goodness, right? There are types of evil in the world. There's moral evil and there's natural evil. Moral evil would be pain and suffering, and that's brought about by wrong choices. People do wrong things, they do morally wrong things, and that brings about a lack of goodness. Natural evil would be pain and suffering that would be brought about by something like a natural disaster or a disease or an illness, right? It's not caused by somebody's choice. Uh, it's just kind of the, the, the world isn't functioning how it ought to function. So today, we're looking at this intellectual problem of evil, and we're trying to discern the truth of things, and we'll get to the emotions next week. Um, so there's this charge that's put forth when we say this problem of evil, and the charge is something like this. Evil and suffering are incompatible with the existence of an all-powerful, all-good God. That would be the accusation. Evil and suffering... Um, don't make sense if God is all good and all loving and all powerful. And this takes a couple of different forms. There, there's a logical form of this. There's a probability form of this. This gets into some deep philosophy stuff, and we don't have time to go all the way into that, but, but I could recommend some resources if you're interested in those types of things. But we're, we're trying to, to sum up, like, is this charge true, that evil and suffering are incompatible with an all-powerful, all-good God? For us as Christians, we're going to ask, how can we give a rational explanation of the coexistence of God and evil? How can we respond to this accusation, this, this charge? And there's a second question that we need to ask ourselves, and it's this. Do we need to explain why God allows evil, or can we simply show that God and evil can coexist, that there's no contradiction between those two ideas, right? Now, to be successful in giving a defense of our faith, I don't think we have to be able to explain why. I would love to be able to explain why. I don't know that that's within our realm of ability. I, I think that might be beyond what we're able to do. But what I think we can show is that these two truths, evil and suffering exist and God exists, are compatible, that there's no inherent problem with those two ideas, all right? So how, as Christians, might we respond to this charge? What, what do we have to say in response? There's several different 
um, areas that we want to think about. And the first of them has to do with free will, all right? That God made creatures with free will. And there's this question that, that can come up, like, if God is all-powerful, can't he create any world that he wants to? Why couldn't God create a world which everything was good and no one ever went wrong? Well, the thing is that God has chosen to create a world with free creatures, right? We are free moral agents. We have the ability to choose to do uh, what we ought to do or to reject what we ought to do. So at, at first blush, it might seem, yeah, God can create any world that he wants. But if he chooses to create a world full of free people, then God can't guarantee that those people will freely choose to do good. If he's going to give you freedom, he can't guarantee that you'll always choose the right thing. Remember, that's a logical inconsistency. He can't force you to choose the right, to freely choose the right thing. That would negate your freedom. He can't make everyone all the time choose to do what's right. And so when we think about much of the evil and suffering in the world, it's accounted for by human freedom. We might ask the question like, well, what's so good about freedom if it's going to lead to pain and suffering? Remember a few weeks ago we talked about freedom being necessary to have love. Like love is a, is a choice to give of yourself sacrificially for the good of another person. And if, if the other person couldn't choose to do otherwise, we might like that world where they always do what we want, but we wouldn't say that was love. Love requires freedom. And so God did not make us as robots, but he created us with the capacity to love. And this is important because as people on this earth... God created us with significance. God made it so that you actually matter. If you couldn't choose to do right or wrong, if you were just some kind of robot that just always did the particular thing that God wanted, then you wouldn't really matter. Think about it like this. Like, um, like do you have a, a machine in your life that breaks? Like the computer this morning that's not doing what it's supposed to do? Like, see, there's the emotional side of the problem of evil coming in, right? But, like, like at some point, like, that machine doesn't matter all that much to me because it's just a machine, right? And I just toss it. But that's not how God views us. God doesn't view us as things to just toss when they don't work. God created us as people with mind, emotion, desires, and the things that we do actually have significance. That is the price of freedom. And that means that we can choose to do good or choose to do evil. And when you look at the world, much of the evil that we see comes from people's free choices. Second response that we have. This one is maybe a little harder for us to stand, but it, for us to understand, but it speaks to the idea that there's natural evil in the world. That um, you know, something like the earthquake in Turkey that just happened or some kind of disease or, or, or illness. And, and the, the answer that we might give is that God may have good reasons to allow this much pain and suffering. And so a question might be asked, if God is all good, 
wouldn't he rather have a world without evil? Again, at, the face, at face value, the answer would be like, yeah. Like, wouldn't God rather just everything be, be good and there be no pain and suffering? And as we begin to think deeply about this, we can realize that, that even in our own lives, that there are times when we allow for pain and suffering so that a greater good can take place. We do this all the time, any of you who have had children, right? Like, you let your children experience some difficult things so that it helps them to grow, so that they learn some lessons, so that they develop from toddlers into adults who are able to be responsible for themselves and to take care of others and to, and to share with others, right? Like, there are times when we let our kids experience hardship so that they will grow as people. There are times when we ourselves voluntarily submit to hardship so that we can get a greater good out of it. Like, if you've ever been to the dentist and they've had to do some work in your mouth, like, you're submitting yourself to pain with the hope that there's going to be a greater good, right? Now, this is hard for us to imagine. It's, it's hard for us to, to deal with maybe on the emotional level, but at least on the intellectual level, we can maybe understand that God might have good reasons for allowing this much evil. When we think about the way that the world works, and especially when we think about God's desire to have relationship with people, if you look at the regions of the world where Christianity is growing, where faith in Jesus is growing, it tends to be those nations that are full of just pain and suffering. There's something about pain and suffering that wakes us up. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said God shouts to us in our pains. There's something about the, that feeling that makes us ask deep questions. Where, uh, as a lot of times when life is going good, it's very easy to forget God. And then in the nations uh, where there's plenty of wealth and prosperity, you'll see not a lot of growth, not a lot of people turning to God. But in places where there's immense suffering, people are asking questions like, is this all there is? Is this it? Is this what life is about? And they begin to explore and go, is there something greater? And, and God reveals himself in those scenarios. So God might have good reasons to allow for this, so that people would reach out and find them. I'm not suggesting that that's the only reason, but we're trying to show that these two things are not incompatible, okay? We can wrestle with the emotional side of that next week, but we're at least showing that it's at least a possibility, all right? And the point is that we are limited, that we can't see the result of every particular thing that happens. We feel the immediate response of it, but or we, we feel like the immediate consequence of it, but we don't know the ultimate end. We're, we're limited in our time and our place, and we don't have the understanding that God has. So, so given our limitations, we're not in a good position to judge whether or not any particular pain or suffering might lead to a good outcome. And we have to remain humble in this. We see this at the book of Job, in the book of Job, right? Job, 
he loses everything. He loses his kids. He loses all of his wealth. He loses his health, right? He's covered in boils. His wife is like, just curse God and die. His friends show up and they try to give him an explanation and their explanation is, is off. It's not true. And Job is an innocent man. He's blameless before God and he's saying, I haven't done anything to deserve this. What is going on here? And he begins to charge God of be, for being unjust. God, I don't deserve this, right? God shows up at the end of the book of Job, chapters 38 through 42. God shows up and speaks to Job. And does he explain to Job why Job suffered all this? No. He says, where were you when I made the world? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I stretched out the heavens? Where were you when I created all the, all the animals that live on the earth and their feeding patterns and their habits and the way that they're provided for? Where, where were you in all this? Basically, he says, it's too complex for you. The reasons that I might have to allow these things are things that you might never be able to comprehend. And this is important for us to just, it's hard to accept because I, I want to set myself up as God and be judge of the universe and say, this is not okay. But again, that's the emotional side of things. The reality is that his ways are far above our ways. There might be glimpses where we have some understanding in this life, but it's not promised to us. It was not promised nor given to Job. And so we need to just simply understand that God might be doing something that is beyond our comprehension. We don't know the ripple effects of a particular event that happens. Have you ever heard of the butterfly effect? Right? Like, like I don't think this happens in reality, but it's just this, this beautiful picture of like, you know, somewhere in Africa, a butterfly flaps its wings and that creates this disturbance in the air that ultimately builds over time. And the next thing you know, you have a hurricane on the other side of the Atlantic, right? Like the consequences of people's free choices and any other natural evil, we, we can't see the end of, but God does. And he's calling us to trust him because he's able to work these things out. And we have some glimpses in Scripture that this might be what God is doing, right? Romans 8, 28, we're familiar with, and it's important that we not use this as a simple slogan, band-aid for the emotional problem of evil, right? But it is at some level true that God works all things for the good for those who love him. It doesn't feel good, and God doesn't say that it, everything is good, but he says he's able to bring about good from it. We see this in the life of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50, he's confronting his brothers. He's basically second in command of Egypt at the time, but he went through a lot of pain. He went through a lot of suffering. They sold him into slavery. And Joseph, in his heart, he forgives them. What does he say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. I'm not in the position to judge God. I don't know how he made the world. So I want to remain humble. But again, let's not get too stuck on the emotional side of things. We're coming to that. Our third response, as we try to give a, a rational response to this problem of evil and suffering, is that Christianity, if it's true, it contains teachings that make the coexistence of God and evil much more likely. Like, like the Christian worldview, as we start to understand God's revelation of, of himself and, and the world, as we start to understand these things, it begins to make some sense of why these things might be happening, right? 
So there are some things that the Bible teaches that we need to take hold of. First of all is this. The chief purpose of this life is not happiness. It is the knowledge of God. I just want to be happy. I remember standing here a long time ago teaching a class and asking a question about children. And I, I asked something and a dad said, well, I just want my son to be happy. And I thought, I, I don't know that that's going to work out too well. A lot of times we pursue happiness. We want to be comfortable. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, all right? But the goal of life is not so that you would be comfortable. The goal of life is not your temporary happiness. John 17.3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's praying, Jesus is praying to God that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Like, God wants us to know him. That's life. That's eternal life. That's eternal joy. And temporary discomfort on the earth is not the be-all and the end-all. You know, like, like, I don't do animals. I don't like pets. But, like, like, if you had a pet, you want to give that pet a good life. You want to take care of it and make sure it's comfortable and all these kinds of things. But the reality is we're not God's pets. It's not like we're his human pets that he put here on the earth and just wants to make sure that we have the best life possible, that we always feel good all the time. The best life possible for us is for us to know him. And that might mean he allows some pain and suffering so that we can come to a knowledge of him. All right? So it's not about our temporary happiness. Secondly, the Bible teaches that, that mankind is in a state of rebellion against God. Again, he's given us freedom, that we are free moral agents. And as we read the story of Scripture and what God's been doing with the world, mankind has rejected him. In Genesis 3, they disobey in the garden. And it's summed up in Romans chapter 1. It says, although they knew God, they neither accepted him as God or worshipped him as such. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and God gave them over to their sin. Mankind is in rebellion. In chapter 3, it talks about how all are bound up under sin. That all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That there is no one righteous, not one. There is no one who does good. So humanity is in a state of rejection and rebellion. Third, God's purpose is not restricted to this life. This is related to number one. God's purpose is not restricted to this life. But it includes eternal life. And I'll read the scripture to you. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. It says this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The things that we see right in front of us, the pain and the suffering right in front of us, they're, they're temporary. And God's purposes in life are not just this life. What we're seeing right now is not the end. God has something in mind for us in eternity. 
And the last thing we might say in terms of Christian teaching is that the knowledge of God is an incomparable good. It's eternal life is what we've said. It far outweighs, this is what the Scripture says, Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Man, when I'm suffering, it doesn't feel light and momentary. It doesn't feel like it's not worth comparing. You've been through loss. I've been through loss. You know the deep pain of that. Like I think back to, to you know, losing a couple babies over a couple of miscarriages and the pain and the depth and the just laying in bed and crying and, and wrestling with this. And, and God is saying, I see that pain, but I have eternal purpose. Knowing me and spending eternity with me and my glory will far outweigh any pain or suffering that we face in this life. So Christian teaching helps us understand how God might allow evil. The next thing, and this is the last one that we'll look at today, is the idea of objective evil. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago about how our moral experience points to God and how if there is such thing as actual good and actual evil, the only grounding that we have for that is God himself. Otherwise, we're left with subjectivism. Otherwise, without God to ground moral values, good and evil, we're just left with everybody's opinion. If, if naturalism is true, we talked about that, right? Naturalism, the idea that, that God doesn't exist, there's no spiritual realm, there's none of that, right? That we're, we're simply just, you know, evolved and, and one particular society's idea of right and wrong and the other particular society's idea of right and wrong, there's no judge between those two things. And so just whatever happens, whatever you happen to like today or whatever this group happens to like today, and there's no ultimate standard. But if there is an ultimate standard, the ultimate standard has to be God. And so if there's this claim that evil actually exists, you're saying there's an ultimate standard. That there's a standard of goodness and there's a... a um, a deviation from that standard. And if, if that deviation exists, then there is a standard. And so, if objective morals exist, good and evil, the only ground for that is God. So if we see actual evil in the world and we want to call it evil, instead of just saying, well, it's just something I don't like because it doesn't feel good. If we want to say, no, that's actually wrong. Those moral atrocities are actually wrong. The only way that we can do that, the only thing that we have to stand on is God himself and his goodness. Otherwise, it's just a matter of opinion and you can pick your flavor of the week. But we don't experience morality that way. If evil exists, if we actually want to call it evil, it points to the goodness of God. So, when it comes to this intellectual problem of evil, I, I think that the coexistence of God and evil is not logically impossible, nor is it improbable. That's what we're trying to show. Again, we have to deal with the emotions, and it's hard to separate. Even as I talk today, I get emotional about it, right? We have to deal with that side of things, which from a purely intellectual sense, these things are not incompatible. 
In fact, if actual evil exists, it, it shows that God exists. So where does this leave us today with this intellectual problem of evil? Well, we've seen that God has revealed himself as both all good and all powerful. We've seen that evil is a lack of goodness and that much of the evil that we see in the world is, is accounted for by the free choices of humanity. That God has made us as creatures of significance so that our actions actually matter. He doesn't just automatically negate them. And then finally, although from our vantage point it's hard to see, that God may have good reasons to allow pain and suffering. Now, as we close, it's important that we understand that it's not up to us to explain any particular pain or suffering. We're not in a position to judge. I can't tell you why. I wish I could tell you why. It's, it's, it's human to want to know why. I can't tell you why you lost that baby. I can't tell you why that murder occurred. I, can, I, I, I can't. It's, it's not up for us to say why any particular, particular instance of pain or suffering occurred. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean there's not some ultimate good that God might be bringing out of it. So I think that, occurred, that this, this intellectual problem of evil is explained by a Christian understanding of the world. That still leaves the emotional side of things, and we're going there next week. Often the emotional side is the more difficult side for us. Like on the intellectual side, we can kind of see like, yeah, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And maybe I don't like that 2 plus 2 equals 4, but whether you like it or not, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Like there's, there's nothing when it comes to pain and suffering and evil that undermines the goodness or the might of God. It doesn't undermine it. And so the answers that we gave today might not be fully satisfying when I'm dealing with the emotional stuff. And I would tell you, if someone is hurting in your life and you have the opportunity to speak into them and to comfort them, don't start here. Don't start where I started today because that's not going to help them. They need a friend. They, you don't need to be Job's friends that come along and be like, well, Job, let me tell you why you're going through this, right? Because they were wrong. They had no clue. They were not helpful to Job, right? Like, these answers, they matter. But when someone is hurting, sometimes they just need you to shut up and put your arm around them. You know, you don't have to say anything. So this is not where we would start if someone is hurting. But nevertheless, these responses are true. Two plus two equals four, whether we like it or not. And so it's important that when we are seeking God and see, uh, trying to live by faith, that our faith is based on reality and not our emotions. Our emotions matter. They're often a big warning light, a red flag saying something's not right here, something needs to change. They're helpful to us, but they do not control us. They are not in charge of us. Rather, we are led by truth, and we lead our emotions to the truth. Just like in that example that I gave earlier where I had that dream and I had these very strong emotions, and I had to say, no, bring them in line with reality, right? Bring them in line with truth. We want our faith to be based on truth, and we want to live in truth. So if maybe you're stuck here today and you go, well, I'm not quite, not quite there yet. That's okay, because this is part one. 
And next week, we'll begin to look at the emotional side of things and see how God might want to bring healing and restoration in the midst of the brokenness of the world. Would you pray with me today? Father God, I want to thank you for this time that we've had to study your word. God, I, I thank you that you love us, that your word says that you are good, that you reveal yourself as powerful. God, that we can trust in you. And God, as each person in this place wrestles with the brokenness and the evil and the pain and suffering in the world, God, I pray that you would lead us to truth and that you would bring us comfort by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stand on your word and the witness of your spirit in our lives. And God, I pray that you would help us to walk faithfully with you even when we don't understand why things might be happening. God, we thank you for your love and your grace. We want to receive it by faith today. In Jesus' name, amen.